Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. If you're a history buff, you'll certainly enjoy today's show because we're going to explore the building of America through the examination of our founding fathers and we'll travel along America's whiskey trail. We'll also share a Sochi postscript as we introduce you to one of the Paralympic Games stars. Today we're going to explore American history through the voices and houses of its founding fathers with award-winning author Myron Magnet, who will help us understand why the American Revolution has been the country's only enduring success. If you sit down, say, with 1,200 pages of George Washington's letters and speeches, you know the guy. He was the most vigorous prose stylist. Um, he, it, it, it is so interesting to watch him develop. We're also going to review American history from another angle as we travel along America's Whiskey Trail with Saturday Evening Post contributor Todd Pittock, who will take us to the birthplaces of America's native spirit. George Washington then started making uh, whiskey himself later uh, and became uh, very successful at it. Uh, the whiskey, because of the, the rebellion, the whiskey distillers fled Pennsylvania, uh, and that's actually why we associate them. They wound up in Kentucky and Tennessee, and that's why we associate those areas with whiskey today. Finally, we'll revisit our coverage of the Sochi Paralympic Games with a postscript as we introduce American champion Mark Batham and his guide Kate Yamamoto, who brought home two silver medals in alpine skiing. Mark and Kate really have the right stuff. Kate and I are a relatively new team to right. you can do. You just start looking. The guide has to figure it out and start looking back. I'll shout at the top of my lungs once in a while, but in downhill, you know, you're out of luck. We hope you enjoy your journey through American history and a postscript of the Sochi Paralympic Games. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. In his new book, The Founders at Home, The Building of America, 1735 to 1817, historian and City Journal editor Myron Magnet tells the magnificent, intimate, and intertwined stories of our founding fathers, their successes, flaws, and inspirations. The Founders at Home provide a unique glimpse into the architectural influences that shaped their homes, lives, and visions of self and our nation. Myron Magnet is gracious to, enough to join World Footprints today to share his inspiration for writing The Founders at Home. Myron, welcome to World Footprints. Oh, Tanya, it's a pleasure to join you. So 
understand that you actually have um, your wife to credit for this accidental inspiration to oh, write this extraordinary book. A- absolutely, she you know she'd gone on a road trip with my son, and they, uh, among other things, had driven down to New Orleans through the back roads of Mississippi and came back with the most astonishing story. She said, you know, we could go on a road trip, too, you and I. I said, oh, I don't know. Uh, and she said, well, you know, we could we could go to Virginia and see the houses of the Founding Fathers. You'd like that, right? I mean, you love architecture. You love the founders. And I thought, all right, you know, what could be bad? Um and it turned out to be a complete conversion experience for me. I walked in, especially to Monticello, mm-hmm. and was floored. As, and you, you understand, I was more than 60 when we did this. And how I, I, I mean, I've seen the great houses of England and many of Europe, um, but I had never been to see the houses of the Founding Fathers. And walking into those houses... It's like walking into the minds of the guys who built them, and they were like so many 18th century gentlemen, amateur architects. So these are really personal artistic expressions of their inner longings and their ideals, and and you get such a... I mean, you know, you you know this. You walk into Monticello, mm-hmm. um, and the... The intricate floor plan, you know, all the demi-octagons and the, and the rectangles all fit together. I had to have a blueprint in my hand just to figure out what was he doing here to make everything fit together. And the, the thing that strikes you after a while that's really notable and strange about the house is that it is flooded with sunshine. He's got these floor-to-ceiling triple-hung windows and louvered skylights everywhere. I mean, they're very technologically advanced with Jefferson. Um, and so you, you finally get the sense that the whole house is, is like some enlightenment shrine and is crying out as Goethe was supposed to have said on his deathbed, more light. It's just, it's just the most beautiful and striking thing. And, you know, he was a, he, he became very young, a widower. Um, so it really is like a bachelor pad. Um, he had his slave Sally Hemings living in a room in the basement. And that was another thing that struck me about the house. He had, I mean, this is a whole, a whole empire based on slavery down there. He had them all hidden away like the Morlocks uh, in, uh, in uh, what is it, in the time machine. Um, and, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, and it was also very interesting to see. We, we all know about Jefferson's contrivances, his tinkering, his inventiveness. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, there's the the famous hidden dumbwaiters on either side of the fireplace for sending wine bottles up from the cellar and um, the lazy Susan revolving pantry door. But, of course, the point of a lot of that was to keep the slaves out of sight um, because he was really so mortified by it since he knew, as a man who had written that all men are created equal, that it was an obscenely evil institution. And... He even wrote at one point in in words that that prefigure Lincoln's second inaugural um, 
that someday a God of justice will manifest by his exterminating thunder his attention to the things of this world, and they are not to be left to the guidance of a blind fatality. Mm-hmm. I've got that etched on my memory, that line. Uh, so, you know, so it was, it was so striking to have a sense not just of the ideals but of the conflicts and contradictions um, that were in this man's mind and heart and were built into the fabric of the country from the start. You know, there was an irreconcilable tension uh, between those, uh, I mean, just unexampled enlightenment impulses for liberty, liberty of thought, political liberty, um, and on the other hand, half the country was economically based on slavery. Um, and this was a tension that, you know, I mean, there was no way to square that circle and, until finally we fought one of the bloodiest wars in history to, to do something about it. So I, I'm curious, were these revelations new to you uh, because of the, the tour of uh, our country that you did to the Founding Fathers' homesteads? Are these new revelations? Well, it, it's what got me started. It's it's what it's what got me thinking. Wait a minute, these were just astonishing guys. Which I, you know, I I'm, I wasn't a student of American history for most of my life. Um, so it, it was it was then that I started reading their letters and speeches, and and I read the Federalist from cover to cover, and. Um, and really wanted to get a sense of who they were. Well, you know, most of them left such voluminous and eloquent writings behind. Um, And if you sit down, say, with 1,200 pages of George Washington's letters and speeches, you know the guy. He was the most vigorous prose stylist. Um, It it is so interesting to watch him develop. We have... have, um, uh, we start out with a with a dis, with a design he wrote for a frock coat when he was about 15 years old, um, and we go through practically to to the day of his death in 1799, um, and you can see this. I came to agree with George III that he was the greatest man who ever lived. Mm. Um, and and you can you can see this character develop, you know, as increasingly somebody who cares so much about the judgment and admiration of others comes to a point where he realizes that he is the only person who can give him the approval that he craves. Um, And so he says, you know, next to doing the right thing for my country, the approval of my constituents is the most is is the most precious thing I can have, but you know that's number two. Number one is doing the right thing, and since finally there's no objective standard of political rightness and wrongness, I have to depend on my own judgment and my own experience, and that's what I'm going to do, regardless of what people think of it. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Is it is it fair to say then, as you've traveled uh, the country and, and toured the different homesteads, that uh, that is the one that resonated with you the most? That's oh no, they. I mean, they're, they're all different and they all speak to you. You know, I mean, 
take one that's not much known, um, and that is Stratford Hall, the home of the of the Lee family. Now, the Lees came to America in 1639. They uh, and it's very very interesting. You know, you read about uh, the first Lee and his wife um, were the first white people, first Europeans on the northern neck of Virginia. Um, you know, managed to escape an Indian massacre, hewed uh, farms out of wilderness, um, and and you know they had already been in the in the country for several generations before you come to the great generation which had two signers of the Declaration of Independence, two important American diplomats abroad in the Revolution, and their cousin who was one of the most dashing of the Revolutionary War generals. It, I mean, imagine that, growing up in one house. Um, you know, you've got this, you, you, you've got five founding fathers. And guess what? The general, Light Horse Harry Lee, um, had his children born in that house, one of whom was none other than Robert E. Lee. Um, so, you know, you, you, the thickness of the history there, and and mind you, Richard Henry Lee, um, who who lived in the house in, in the generation before Rob, before Robert E. Lee, um, in 1759 he made his maiden speech in the Virginia House of Burgesses, and this slave owner gets up and says to his fellow slave owners, "End slavery." This is this is more than a hundred years before the Civil War. He says it's unjust, um, you know, and and it's uh, it's imprudent because uh, uh, we're becoming economically and culturally backward um, compared to what's going on in the free North. Um, so this took some courage for him to be able to do, but it's also, I mean, to me, it was just the most extraordinary thing that at the very heart of the slave empire, in the middle of the 18th century, people knew perfectly well that what they were involved in was wrong, and people were trying to to do something to stop it, and then that it should happen, that this family should produce Robert E. Lee, whom Lincoln asked to be the head of the Union Army, um, and then Robert E. Lee finally had to make his choice of which side was he on, mm-hmm. um, and the guy from this family made the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I, and and well, that's one of the things I'm most grateful for uh, about your book, because that's a story that we don't hear. I've never heard that. In fact, I was very, very surprised to learn about some of the founders' opposition uh, to slavery, and even um, their understanding of religious oppression. Talk a little bit about that dynamic, too. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that that struck me, I mean, I got, I, I got very interested in the worldview of these guys as I, as I looked at the houses and read the letters. And um, one, uh, what struck me is the, the, passionate attachment 
they had to the idea of liberty. And they had it, you know, you, you will know this from your time in Petersburg. Um, they had it because they had a really kind of firsthand knowledge of its opposite. Um, in the way that people who had lived under communism in the in the old days knew about it, or Jews who had escaped the Holocaust knew about it, they were and they were very conscious of this. Um, many of them were descended, and and they knew this. They were descended from from non-Anglican Protestants who had had to leave England, whose ancestors had had to leave England or Scotland, um, because they were discriminated against. Of course, in the early days, some of them were burned at the stake. Um, and, and, and in the early days, some of them were jailed. Then in latter times, they were just fined and excluded from the great universities and excluded from political life. So Congregationalists, Baptists, Quakers, Presbyterians, came to these shores in droves. The Plymouth Pilgrims were only the first of them. And, and Protestants from continental Europe also came. John Jay started writing, our first Chief Justice, started writing a, a little history of his family. And as far as he got, it's just absolutely fascinating because he talks about how his grandfather, uh, who came from a very rich merchant family, had gone on a trading voyage and came home to La Rochelle um, to discover that his his family was gone. His neighbors were gone. Mm -hmm. Soldiers occupied the houses. Their church had been pulled down because while he was away, um, Louis the Fourteenth had revoked the Edict of Nantes, which which uh, had given civil liberties to Protestants. So all the French Protestants, the so-called Huguenots, fled, and an immense number of them came to America. Um, and, 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 you know, and incidentally, an immense number of them to New York. The influence here, even now in the 21st century, is, is, is really palpable. But John Jay's son was his first biographer. He was, a, he was one of the most eloquent and active of the abolitionists uh, here in New York. And uh, he, he says, and you know what? Two of John Jay's other grandparents had to flee anti-Protestant persecution. They were, they were much readier to give up their country than their faith. Um, and so they ca they came here to America. So they they were very very conscious mm -hmm. um, that freedom of thought and freedom of belief was absolutely key to human flourishing and happiness. Because without that freedom, you know, if you're told you have to believe what is the orthodox belief, all kinds of other unfreedoms can very quickly and nastily follow from that. And, uh, uh, and so they were very, very jealous guardians of the liberty of Americans. Mm. You know, it's often said that those who cannot remember um, our past, the history, are condemned to repeat it. And have you uh, or have we as a society learned from the mistakes 
um, of our founders and actually some of the lessons that they try to impart uh, and and, and um, bring over. Oh, Tanya, this is one of these yes and no answers. Um, I mean, l- l- look, if you look at our history from the founding on, um, one of the things that you have to marvel at um, is that, yes, we had this this irreconcilable conflict between so great a love of liberty on the one hand and half the country being economically based on slavery on the other hand. And what did we do? We fought one of the bloodiest wars in history to end it. And then, you know, our history for the last hundred years has been trying to make it right, um, trying to include formerly enslaved Americans into the mainstream of society. So that's a, uh, it, it, anybody who wants to say, you know, you look out at the Muslim world and see that there's still slavery there. You look into parts of Africa and see that there's still slavery there. Anybody who wants to say that America is a uniquely oppressive country just does not understand anything about not only American history, but, a, but about the history of the world. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's one other thing. The, the founders believed, and George Washington was the most eloquent statesman for, uh, spokesman for this point of view, and it was in his first State of the Union speech that he, that he first said it so eloquently. He said, you know, I presided over the Constitutional Convention, and I think that we produce as nearly perfect an outline for government as humans can produce. But, you know, a constitution is just a parchment barrier, um, which demagogues can overturn. And the ultimate guarantee of our free constitution is a culture of liberty. It's that the people themselves really reverence the document and reverence the principles that it stands for and do not have any, as he said, listlessness about the natural and unalienable rights of mankind. Um, So it's that culture of, and he said, so we've got to teach our children always um, to have these same values. And what worries me so much um, is that those culture-making institutions, the universities, the schools, the, the mainstream media, Hollywood, um, you, you know, are constantly putting out this message of the injustice of this country, the victimization of this or that class of human being, um, without having any idea um, of the, the of of how our founders and their successors turned themselves inside out to try to make things as right, just, and free as they could, and by comparison with other countries, you know from your experience in Russia, um, you know we've done a most extraordinary job, and we've stopped talking about it in the culture-making institutions. And I think George Washington is, you know, was right that um, 
if you start believing that, oh, this is a country based on racism and it's a country based on theft um, and it's filled with injustice and discrimination and look at the 99% against the 1% and this has a most corrosive effect um, and uh, that's my big worry right now. It's mm-hmm. It's 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 that it's that the corruption of the culture uh, can corrupt the politics. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's you know I would uh, advise listeners to take the same type of road trip that you did. I mean, right across the river from me, um, it sits George Washington's homestead of Mount <laughs> Vernon, and um, I'm amazed at. The things that I learned about George Washington, he was a very progressive man. Oh, uh, fabulously. For his time. Um, but speaking of George Washington, I want to uh, fast forward a little bit to another historic home that you visited in 2008. Um, at that time, my former boss, uh, President George W. Bush awarded you with a National Humanities Medal. Congratulations, first <laughs> of all. You. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, was that uh, was that your first time at the White House? And oh no, you know, uh, I wrote a book. I, 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 an earlier book I wrote was called "The Dream and the Nightmare: The '60s Legacy to the Underclass," and it's. I mean, you you know, I have an obsession with culture. Um, having started life as a as a professor, although I soon turned to journalism, um, but uh, 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 so 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 this book argued that the the changes that we made in our culture in the '60s, having to do with sex, having to do with letting it all hang out, having to do with the rejection of authority. Um, you know, they may have had having to do with drugs. Um, they, they had had bad effects on individuals. Um, but if you came from a you know a solid middle class family, generally speaking, you could avoid or recover from some of the bad effects of the of the cultural transformation that happened in the '60s. But people at the bottom of society who have no leeway whatsoever for failure, you know, if you tune in, turn on, and drop out, and you're already at the bottom, you will never get back. And we lost, you know, it's now several generations of the inner city underclass. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it's just a tragedy that, that that's still with us today. So Carl Rolfe had read the book and gave it to George W., um, who read it and told the Wall Street Journal that that it was the most important book for him after the Bible. Hmm. Um, and uh, so, you know, so he asked me to come down to Austin when he was still governor of Texas. We became friends then and stayed friends all through his presidency and, you know, kept in touch. Uh, and uh, every so often I would I would politely send him suggestions and he would you 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 know this the the scroll and the felt pen right um, <laughs> I I'd get I'd get back a nice note from the president um, and uh, so so no I was in the White House you know uh, really many times while he was president and it was very exciting to go back at the end and I I am very proud of 
having the National Humanities Medal, and especially from having it from his hands, since I admire him so much. Indeed, indeed. Myron Magnan is the author of an extraordinary book, The Founders at Home, The Building of America, 1735 to 1817. And there is a link to... uh, purchase and read more about this book on our website and on Myron's guest page uh, on our website at worldfootprints.com. Myron, thank you so much for joining us today. I would love to have you back on our show. This has been a wonderful conversation, and I know there's so many more stories uh, that that you have to share, and uh, I'd love to invite you back. Thank you, Tanya. I enjoyed it very much. After the break, we'll enjoy a taste of America's native spirit as we travel the Whiskey Trail with Saturday Evening Post contributor Todd Pittock. George Washington then started making uh, whiskey himself later uh, and became uh, very successful at it. Uh, the whiskey, because of the rebellion, the whiskey distillers fled Pennsylvania, uh, and that's actually why... Then they wound up in Kentucky and Tennessee, and that's why we associate those areas with whiskey today. Next, as World Footprints continues. Bonjour, je m'appelle Nico, je suis français, et j'adore écouter World Footprints. Hello, I'm Nico, I'm French, and I love to listen to World Footprints. Visit the Galapagos Islands, meet polar bears in Canada, sip wine in northern Italy, explore the Hawaiian Islands aboard a luxury yacht, and stand face-to-face with China's terracotta soldiers. Explore the world on a journey of a lifetime with World Footprints Discovery Tours. These tours give a unique view of the world in an intimate, small group setting with the freedom to immerse yourself in local culture, learn, and make new friends along the way. Book early and save. Visit worldfootprints.com and look for Discovery Tours to begin your next adventure today. Human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal industry in the world. One of the greatest myths is that human trafficking is only a third world problem, but neither education, wealth, age, race, nor social standing protects one from becoming a victim of human trafficking. Awareness and action are key to fighting this crime against humanity. To report human trafficking or to learn more, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-3737-888. Collectively, we can put an end to human trafficking one step at a time. Don't have the time to give back to the community? No time to socialize or network? Then volunteer with OneBrick. Volunteer only when it fits your schedule, and then join us for food, drinks, and great conversation afterwards. It's a great way to meet new people, have fun, and help the community. Join us at www.onebrick.org. That's www.onebrick.org. One Brick. Volunteering made easy. Did you know that World of Footprints has something for everyone? From great radio shows with celebrity guests and the latest travel news and information to dynamic travel deals and more. Make WorldFootprints.com your first stop. Also, don't forget to visit the Travel Marketplace for sales on travel essentials and services. Hi, my name is Catherine from France and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. At World Footprints, we like discovering and sharing little-known travel treasures. 
One of those is the American Whiskey Trail. Todd Pittock is a contributor to the Saturday Evening Post. He toured the Whiskey Trail, which runs from Mount Vernon to Bardstown, Kentucky, and he rediscovered the rich heritage and deep roots in our nation's history along the way. Todd, welcome. Good to be here. Tell us about the Whiskey Trail. Exactly what is it? Uh, the trail itself uh, was started by the Distilled Spirits Council of America, which is a, a, a trade group, um, to promote uh, the idea of American whiskey, but what they, they so they set up a, a a route that runs basically, as you said, from Washington up through Pennsylvania down to Kentucky, and actually all the way to Tennessee, um, with a lot of neat stops along the way at distilleries. Hmm. So it's an organized uh, it was an organized trail uh, created by the um, industry itself. Yeah, I, well, you know, it was a way of telling the story of American whiskey better. Um, and just to be clear on the, on the organized thing, it's organized in the sense that it's a, it's a self-guided tour. I don't know if anyone does it as an organized tour. Um, but, you know, the, the story of American whiskey is a pretty amazing story of American history, right? You know, because the trail, when we say it starts in, in Washington, it starts at Mount Vernon at George Washington's uh, distillery. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so as you go, you're really narrating a very interesting, you know, episode in American history that, you know, carries on to this day and that, you know, you can visit and taste. This trail takes us into states like Maryland and Pennsylvania and then westward to uh, Kentucky. And so it, it, it does kind of follow, in a sense, kind of the national road. But talk to us about the importance of whiskey in really the development of uh, industry and commerce in our country. You, you know, you have these whiskey distillers, which was a big part of American life in, uh, you know, in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and I guess maybe it's a good point to talk about where, um, you know, what that brief history is. Well, it's actually quite a long history, but we'll tell it briefly. Um, you know, the, the distillers were... Uh, busy in Pennsylvania, the government, the, the president at the time was George Washington. Washington imposed a, a, a tax on distillers. That led, that was the first federal tax, and it led to a rebellion known as the Whiskey Rebellion. The irony is that Washington then began, George Washington then started making uh, whiskey himself later uh, and became uh, very successful at it. Uh, the Whiskey, because of the, the rebellion, the whiskey distillers fled Pennsylvania, uh, and that's actually why we associate, then they wound up in Kentucky and Tennessee, and that's why we associate those areas with whiskey today. Back to something that you mentioned earlier, Todd, you said, you know, these are self-guided tours and a way for people to really discover American history through, you know, the growth and, and of, of the whiskey industry. I have a, a two-part question. Um, one being, how do people learn ab- about American history? And was this trail, uh, self-guided trail, created because America failed to tell its whiskey story all these years? That's a great question. I'm going to start with the second one. There are people who really feel that we didn't tell the uh, story of American history the story of American whiskey very well. Um, and this became a way, as with all trails, it becomes a way to narrate 
uh, you know, the, the history and to at, at, and at each distillery as you go from place to place. Now, I'm going to answer your first question alongside it. Um, you know, there are great resources online. There are books along the way, and they're often sold in the gift shops of these places. Um, but each of the distilleries talks about their own uh, piece of the story, and I think that's how you learn it. You're also seeing these fantastic landscapes. Um, in terms of telling the story of American whiskey, I guess there's, there's a lot of ways to do that. I, what interested me was, was the history, right? Uh, but then there's also the, the story about what it is. I think that it's been seen as, you know, because we have bourbon, we have Tennessee whiskey. Those are distinct American styles. And there are other styles. I mean, this is also part of the, the whiskey story today is the resurrection of old recipes. And so, you know, letting people know um, that exists and also that, in fact, it's, it's really good, uh, good at good price points, um, you know, has been part of that story, I think, from an industry point of view that, want, you know, that I think that's what they want people to know. And as a person who's not connected to the industry but who just loves whiskey, um, you know, I, I like that story myself. Are there places along the trail that are essentially relics and artifacts and buildings that are no longer used that are important to telling this story as well that people can see? As I said, the first one is Mount Vernon. Uh, I mean, that's pretty much where they started the tour. Um, you know, and that's obviously George Washington's house uh, and the distillery. And the interesting part of that story, that piece of it is just that they excavated the distillery and then they started making whiskey again from that distillery. It was, it was dormant for a long time. But obviously it's not just about whiskey. The, the trail goes up in, actually into Manhattan. It goes up to uh, the Francis Tavern Museum, which is where Washington bid the troops farewell. Um, there are, you know, there's, there's Gatsby's Tavern in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, uh, you know, it's a historic building. So it's not only whiskey. Um, yeah, so then, you know, and, and, then, and, and there are some places, by the way, I, I did not, there were places that I didn't visit myself along the way, um, including um, the Oliver Miller Homestead in, in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I don't think they're making whiskey there. Whiskey is making a comeback kind of as a, kind of like we've seen this resurgence of brewing uh, with craft breweries and, and so forth. Uh, what's happening in the whiskey space in, in terms of these uh, regional whiskeys and the growth of this craft distilling mm -hmm. around whiskey? The artisan craft uh, phenomenon is happening across everything, right? And, and it's certainly happening in whiskey, too. Uh, you know, and, and there, again, there's a little bit of history, right? So, so you had, prior to Prohibition, you had hundreds or more of uh, distillers, and they were making their own stuff. There were guys who made, you know, whiskey in mine shafts, and they used all kinds of There's something called sugar shine, which is made, the, made, the base of it has a lot of, uh, I believe it's cane. Um, and so these recipes, when, when Prohibition came in, all these places were shut down. Um, and when Prohibition ended, the industry was dominated by a few big companies. So now, all the way, you know, all this time later, it's only beginning to recover and get back to what it was, which is this incredibly diverse, you know, world of whiskey. Um, you know, the, what got me interested in this particular place, in addition to the fact that the trail was there, was I kind of wanted to go back to the original, the places where it's been anchored and kind of started, you know, and, and held its own all the time. But now you're seeing whiskey made all over the country, um, 
you know, and really, really neat, fun stuff. Todd, I want to clarify just for our audience benefit that when we're talking about the the whiskey trail, it's not in the same vein as talking about a a wine trail with regards to tastings, uh, because I understand from you that there are tasting regulations along the whiskey trail, which I find is very, very um, odd and and interesting the same, but it's not as though somebody traveling along the whiskey trail could just pop into a distillery for a tasting. Right, right. And and it's a funny story, actually. Um, Jack Daniels is in Lynchburg, Tennessee, and it was only relatively recently that they were permitted to, to offer samples. Um, and, you know, until uh, last year, 18 months ago, uh, Lynchburg remained a dry county. They never had enough uh, uh, people there to overturn uh, the regulations that, that dated to prohibition. Kind of an irony, considering it's the most visited whiskey distillery, I believe, in the world. I, I know it's the number one selling whiskey in the world. Um, so, so yes, I mean, it, depending on what distillery you go to, you may or may not be able to taste because it, it, the rules differ from county to county in these places. Um, I, I do believe that with advanced um, reservations and with groups, special events can be set up to, to allow for tasting. But if you're traveling on your own, you may want to pick up the phone uh, and see if you can taste and visit the places where you can taste. Todd, in terms of your experience along the Whiskey Trail, what are some of the most interesting, most poignant stories uh, that stand out to you? One of the things that I really enjoyed was seeing the uh, particular um, little cultures within these different places. You know, uh, there's a, there's a, a Tennessee whiskey maker, George Dickel, um, it's just an incredibly beautiful setting. In you know, in the, there's a general store, there's the distillery, and um, you know these old buildings in this forest of of, um, of sugar maples. Um, you know, there's a smell of the the um, uh, of them making the charcoal from from the wood. Uh, there's a little building uh, where they used to, and a lot of the distillers have this where. That's where they would the, the the government required them to to accommodate the tax people, the people who were monitoring, making sure they were paying what they had to pay. And so the rule was they had to accommodate them. It didn't didn't need to have to be heated. It didn't need to have any bathroom. So they basically gave these guys a glorified outhouse, uh, and that's where the tax guys had to sit. There are little snippets of this, and then you know, at Dickel, for example. Um, you know, the distiller walked us around, and he said, he said something I like. He, he said, we don't use computers. He said that, you know, uh, computers don't make good whiskey. People do. <laughs> and and I think that that, in a way, is, is the part that I, those are the types of things that I really enjoyed was that contact, um, you know, especially where it was the smaller producers. I felt like some of the larger ones, some of the presentations felt a little canned to me. Uh, they felt a little bit um, touristy. Um, but at the smaller ones, and there's a whole world of, of places that, that, you know, along the way, and some of them aren't officially on a route or not. And I don't really know how one gets on a route. Uh, but you kind of, you, you know, it's, it's, they're all part of this tradition. Um, you know, of American whiskey. And so I, I love the small producers and sort of discovering names and tastes that I hadn't had before. Um, and, uh, and of course, visiting the big ones is also kind of fun because you know the names. You know, you're familiar coming in, 
and you kind of connect, and you're like, ah, okay, that's neat. Now, Todd, we've often heard of whiskey and we've heard of bourbon, and, and a lot of times we associate bourbon with uh, Tennessee. Is there anything that uh, uh, distinguishes the two, or is is there a story behind yeah. the use of those names? Whiskey is a category. Uh, scotch is a type of whiskey, and that's Scotch is, you know, Scottish whiskey. There's Irish whiskey, there's Canadian whiskey. American whiskey... Primarily, the main uh, styles are bourbon and Tennessee whiskey. Uh, bourbon, Tennessee whiskey, there, there are certain regulations that make them bourbon or Tennessee whiskey. Um, and, in fact, there's a big lawsuit on now over the definition of Tennessee whiskey. Bourbon um, has to have um, 51% uh, corn mash, uh, it has to be aged in a, a new um, charred oak barrel. The and there are other some uh, some other small uh, regulations to go with it. It has to be made in America, also by the way, not necessarily in Tennessee. Uh, or sorry, in Kentucky. In, in Tennessee whiskey, to go through an additional process of, of filtering through charcoal, and it makes it just a touch sweeter. Uh, you know, there are stories with all these things. In the case of bourbon, there's a lot of controversy within people who follow these things closely as to the origins of the name. Some people say it actually was because they were shipping the barrels down to Bourbon Street in uh, New Orleans. Um, you know, uh, the, the, there's general agreement that you could trace the name back to France. But anyway, without getting in too deeply into that, um, yeah, the, the names are... Uh, you know, have a particular meaning to people who follow it. Todd, in our closing minutes, I want to just kind of tie up some things that we've discussed. Uh, uh, you had discussed earlier about kind of the resurgence of uh, whiskey and that going almost coinciding with this new interest in mixology and having uh, your own specialty liqueur or your own specialty liquor, uh, it, it seems as if whiskey and bourbons and this whole realm of scotches is actually taking hold with a uh, new generation who are being introduced to classic drinks as well as some of the new things. Talk about this lasting popularity, it seems, for whiskey in general here in America. Well, look, you certainly have a strong core following, right? Um, you know, and... The, the the old you know the the thing that was the, the biggest thing was Jack, you know uh, Jack Daniels number seven with Coke right or, or Jack and Sprite or whatever people were mixing it with I think there were uh, Mad Men I think the TV show Mad Men had an influence uh, you know people started ordering Manhattan's again hmm. um, you know I think that as I said before that there's the the artisan movement uh, part of that also has to do with a, a certain affluence where people are looking for premium brands. Um, and that pushed the the industry into rolling out more products, right? And the big guys started to, you know, map up quality and and variety of what they had to offer in response to uh, the artisan makers. You know, uh, the same things happened in beer, right? Um, so, um, you know, and then with each and bartenders, I mean, the, the, you know, the whole art of mixology has really come on. I mean, you know. Um, there's a discovery, there's a demand, people, it's a lot of fun. Um, you know, uh, more women are drinking whiskey now, which I think was also a, a, a very um, conscious push within the industry. 
um, to say, hey, you don't need to have it straight. You know, you can have it mixed. You can have it with water. You can have it any way it tastes good. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything's acceptable. Um, so, they, you know, they've, they've really expanded. There's a market. And um, as I said, I think it's just a lot of fun. It's certainly fun to travel to these places. So, uh, Todd, just before we, we leave off, what is the website where people can go to to learn more about the Whiskey Trail? There's www.discus, D-I-S-C-U-S, dot org, ba- uh, backslash trail. Um, or my standby thing is just to um, just Google it, the uh, American Whiskey Trail. Okay. Uh, Todd Tiddick Todd is a contributor to the Saturday Evening Post. He just wrote an article about his adventures along the Whiskey Trail. Todd, thank you so much for joining World Footprints today. After the break, we'll share a postscript from our time in Sochi by introducing two-time silver medalist, visually impaired skier Mark Batham, and his guide, Kate Yamamoto. Kate and I are a relatively new team to Next, as World Footprints continues. Hey, this is Orca from Moscow. I'm here with uh, World Footprints. Uh, welcome to the USA Russia Sledge Ice Hockey Game. World Footprints Radio is an award winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals, from environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr., to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information, including special daily travel deals. More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year, illegally. Poaching is just one of the risks animals face at our hands. I'm Tom Barry. I'm an actor. I grew up in the beautiful rural countryside of Ohio, where animals roam freely in the open forests. I have a deep concern to help preserve those open spaces for our wildlife friends so they can live and thrive like they used to. Destruction of their habitats threaten their very existence. The best way to protect wildlife is to protect the land where they live. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust works with private landowners to protect wildlife, to preserve natural habitats, and establish permanent sanctuaries. To learn more or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, call 800-729-SAVE. That's 800-729-SAVE. Or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives. Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hello, I'm George from Bath in England, and I'm loving my time here in Sochi with World Footprints Radio. 
You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. We've met some very dynamic athletes in Sochi, including two-time silver medalist Mark Batham and guide Katie Yamamoto. Mark won silver in the men's Super G and Super Combined for the visually impaired. And what makes that feat so remarkable is that Mark and Kate have only been working together for two months prior to the Paralympic Games. Let's get some insight from both Mark and Kate on working together. First up, Kate Yamamoto. Yeah, so it's, it's cutting back on, you know, a whole sentence and more just, okay, it's bumpy. Okay, we're going into a two-gator. And the thing about downhill versus the tech events is that you do have a lot of time to actually talk. Um, this course, less so, like Mark said, it's one of the faster courses that we've ran this year. But it's still, you do have a lot of time to kind of almost have a conversation back and forth um, at a high high rate of speed, but there is some back and forth commentary that goes on, you know, where where you at, oh, I'm right here, you know, okay, be prepared for this, okay, you know, go, 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 all right, we're going to get in our tuck, okay. I wouldn't say that we get on each other, it's more just, you know, like he, like he said, his charge is facing, so if he starts to gain on you rapidly, you know, yeah, he's yelling, go, 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 as fast, you know, as loud as he can, telling me to get in my tuck, and then, you know, I'm pushing, and then, two, you know, at the start, we had that big uh, left footer through the three-gate corner, and so in there, I'm calling out, you know, make sure you're standing on it, um, you know, giving him a heads up, just, just what's going on, but no, it's never really an, any kind of aggressive back and forth, more just... Up to learning curve, 
but what happens is it's like any team, right? Kate's a superstar. I'm not quite as good a superstar. And so, but you know, you have to have teamwork on a basketball team or a football team, right? And you can have a bunch of individuals that play well, and you can get to a certain plateau. But to get beyond that, you really need a lot of time together. And, you know, our competitors have been doing this for some of them over eight years now. So, you know, we're going to have a greater margin of error, but, you know, it hasn't, hasn't really cost us. Does the process change with guide to guide in terms of meshing with personalities and skiing styles? Yeah, so it's um, not something that I consciously do, but I will mimic the technique of my guide. Okay. And so the better their technique, the better I will ski. Um, so if a guide has a peculiar habit to their skiing, I tend to adopt that really? habit. Uh, fortunately, Kate is technically very sound, and it's one of the things that made us a, a, a quick team or a team that's advanced quickly. Sure. But uh, you guys don't agree on a choice of ski here. I see you've got the head, then we have the atomics. Well, I crashed uh, two days ago, and we uh, bent a pair of the atomics. So we both would have been on the same pair of skis, except I bent them. And the ski, we love both pair of skis, but they each have a different base grind to them, depending on which can be faster in certain types of snow conditions. And um, so anyway, I stuck with the atomic, and he had to go with the head, and the other atomic were bent. Is there anything that you guys say to each other up at the top when you're getting ready to race and before you come down? Yeah, so I like to just step through each turn of the race course with Cade. You know, it helps me with my focus, um, visual, helps me visualize the course. Um, makes me comfortable that you know I know that his head in the race as well, uh, and we'll also just have conversations with people to not get too keyed up and to get too nervous. You know, you don't want to get tight. Um, so he's definitely very calm, a good influence on me up in the hard area. I say more relaxed and with Kate than at some of the other events. Yeah, Mark, last question for me. Just just tell me a little bit more about your impairment. Your yeah. yeah, so I have an eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa. Retinitis pigmentosa is actually a family of eye diseases. There's a hundred known genetic defects now. There's two primary symptoms. One is night blindness. That's the first thing that people will notice. And then the second is the gradual loss of peripheral vision. And so my sight is like looking through a toilet paper tube. So when I look at you, I can't see your whole face. As a matter of fact, if I look at your left eye, I can just catch part of your ear. I can't see your hairline. I don't see your lips. And so when I, you know, look down the course and I'm looking at Kate, that's about all I can see. Um, and it's uh, I have of RP of those 100 uh, genetic defects, I have the most common. Uh, so, so that said, I mean, you were speaking earlier about sort of the different spacing between you guys. Is there sort of a not like an ideal gap between you, and do you try to maintain that throughout? It depends on the event. So in downhill, depending on the speed, um, you know, if, if it's a moderate speed, meaning 60 miles an hour, we'd probably like to be 20 feet apart, okay. maybe at most 25. When you get up into 70, 75, you need a little bit more space just because I need that extra five feet maybe to react to his movement. Um, and in something like a slalom, okay. the gates are only, what, 
How many meters apart are small? Six, eight, eight. So I can only follow him by eight or ten feet. Okay. Um, but we're going much slower. So the rule of thumb that we have is a half gate. Um, that half gate works in slalom and GS. Okay. And then in Super G, we'll try to keep that to 15 feet. And then downhill, we'll try to keep it 15, 25, 30 at the outside. Thank you so much for joining us for today's World Footprints Radio Show. All of our shows are archived on our website, so if you've missed a show or you want to hear our World Footprints Travel Report giving you the day's breaking travel and world news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, subscribe to our newsletter and click on social media icons to follow us on your favorite social network. Also, check out our low-cost cultural immersion discovery tour to Vietnam. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.